The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. The title of this lecture is Inerrancy and the Problem of Harmonization in the New Testament. Now, I don't know whether that rings a bell or not, uh, or whether it's just uh, uh, fancy talk that doesn't make much sense. Another way of entitling this lecture or this talk might be something like, what do you do when you find an apparent contradiction in the Gospels? Particularly, we're going to be focusing on the Gospels, although as we shall see, this is a much general uh, question than just the Gospels. Now, the word inerrancy itself uh, has a particular uh, significance in this kind of context. I'm, I'm saying the word inerrancy over against many other words that we might use to speak about the authority of Scripture. I suppose that uh, we can think of a passage like uh, Matthew 22 where Jesus, uh, in his polemics, in his debates with the uh, Pharisees, uh, made the statement to them, that you err, you err not knowing the scriptures. With the obvious implication that if you know the scriptures, you're not going to err. Now, from that point of view, obviously, the word inerrancy uh, means the same thing as the word infallibility. Uh, it is simply an affirmation that the scripture is reliable, that it leads us aright, that if we follow it, if we know it, uh, it will not mislead us. But as a matter of fact, as you may be aware of, the, uh, the word infallible and the word inerrancy uh, in the past, um, I don't know, 10, 20 years uh, have uh, received something of a specialized meaning, a little bit. And you find that some individuals, uh, many individuals, are arguing that they like the word infallibility. They like to speak of, a, of an infallible scripture, but not of an inerrant scripture. Now, sometimes uh, that's simply a matter of semantics. Some people are afraid that the word inerrancy conveys certain funny ideas and they want to avoid them. But other times, uh, it's a more substantive kind of thing. And uh, usually, it runs along uh, these lines that, oh yes, we believe in the infallibility of Scripture uh, in this sense that whenever it speaks about what really matters, our salvation, then it can be trusted but we don't worry about uh, minor problems. And by minor problems, we may be thinking about, uh, say, historical difficulties, uh, apparent contradictions. Uh, and, and the point is, you know, when you use the word inerrancy, you tend to focus on, uh, on minor questions, or, or at least on issues which are not as significant uh, to uh, the real, really big issues of salvation and our relationship with God. Now, uh, here at Westminster, and not only here, of course, but uh, certainly here, uh, we don't like that kind of distinction. Uh, it is true, of course, that certain things are more important than others, but uh, it can be a very deceiving thing uh, to uh, talk about, uh, well, the Bible uh, is true and it can be relied on on the important things, but not on the minor things. 
because uh, it creates a real difficulty in trying to decide what is minor and what is major for one thing. And it also creates a problem in that if you make a, a very sharp distinction between those things in Scripture that have to do with salvation on the one hand, and on the other hand, things which supposedly do not have very much to do with salvation, historical questions or questions about the nature, you know, scientific issues. That kind of a distinction uh, most of the time ends up being uh, really a false one uh, because uh, the things that really matter with regard to the gospel are so closely tied to historical questions, for example. Now, um, so much for the word inerrancy. Uh, when we continue to use the word inerrancy, it's not just because we want to be uh, a polemic about it and, and uh, try to start up a fight, nothing of the sort, but because we do think that when we speak about the authority of Scripture, about its truth, that you cannot limit it uh, to spiritual or religious questions, but that uh, it, it also affects uh, what uh, the Scripture says concerning history, concerning scientific issues, and so on. What about the word harmonization? Well. Harmonization uh, is simply a method for solving historical problems. That's all it is, really. A method for solving historical problems. Or, if you will, also conceptual problems. Uh, when a, a classical scholar is reading, um, oh, any ancient author, or Plato, whoever it may be, from time to time he may come across uh, a passage in Plato that uh, doesn't seem to quite uh, uh, agree with some other passage uh, also in Plato, sometimes even a passage in the same document. And the classical scholar's uh, first impulse is to try to solve the problem. His first impulse is not to say, well, Plato is so inconsistent or something of the sort. His first impulse is always, now how do we put these two things together? And he will try to solve the problem. He will try to harmonize the two passages, if he can. And uh, I want to stress that aspect of it because the uh, method of harmonization is, is really not peculiar to biblical studies. It is just a standard way of approaching any, any document, and particularly historical documents. When you're dealing with any period in history, you have uh, various kinds of witnesses, if you will, uh, various kinds of documents. Uh, they may be chronicles, they may be little anecdotes here and there, they may be official records, uh, whatever. And uh, inevitably, you're going to come across certain problems. This document doesn't seem to agree with that one there. How are we going to treat it? And if you're responsible as a historian, you're going to try to see each document in the best light possible and try to see whether or not there's some reasonable way of making all the, all the data fit together into some kind of coherent whole. It's really an ind indispensable element uh, in, in the historical approach. Now. Needless to, uh, to emphasize, harmonization takes on a special prominence in biblical studies because of the authority of Scripture. If uh, the Scriptures really are authoritative, infallible, inerrant, then uh, whenever we come across a problem, an apparent conflict, we are probably a little bit more concerned about that than if we find a, a little problem in Plato. If Plato did contradict himself, well, so what? Um, uh, it's not completely insignificant, but it doesn't really make uh, that much difference in, uh, in our lives. 
But if we find a conflict in scripture, which we are committed to as the source of, of uh, true knowledge and of our salvation, then we are a little bit concerned and we uh, want to solve the problem. So because of the authoritative character of scripture, we, we pay special prominence to it. But there's also another aspect here, and that is the fact that the scriptures, that in the scriptures, we often have uh, overlapping treatments. That is, in two different passages, we may have the same topic being, being uh, dealt with. For example, uh, the books of Samuel and Kings overlap in the material they cover with the books of Chronicles. Uh, these two sets of documents, Samuel Kings on the one hand and Chronicles on the other, uh, treat of the history of the monarchy uh, in Israel. They cover the same material. And uh, from time to time you find uh, a number here in Kings which doesn't seem to agree with the number in Chronicles. Or you have an incident uh, which uh, is described in, in quite different ways. And uh, you just have to ask the question, what do we do with this? Is this an error? Is this a conflict that cannot be resolved? Uh, or should we harmonize it? How do we handle it? Or in the New Testament, you may have that problem with regard to, uh, oh, for example, the book of Acts and the epistle to the Galatians. That's an interesting one. Uh, for instance, in Galatians, in chapter 2, Paul talks about a certain meeting that he had with um, uh, the apostles in Jerusalem. Now you go to the book of Acts and you find there's another meeting uh, described in the book of Acts. It surely sounds like the same thing in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council. Uh, the people seem to be the same. Here's Paul and James and John and Peter. And the issue seems to be the same, whether or not uh, the uh, Gentiles ought to be circumcised. And the uh, results seem to be the same. But there are some differences and some important uh, problems. And uh, some would argue there are contradictions. So you have to solve that problem. How do you solve it? Well, one way of solving it is to say there is a contradiction. Uh, they talk about the same uh, uh, meeting and uh, nevertheless uh, the book of Acts, whoever wrote it, the people might say, uh, just didn't know what he was talking about. And we have to follow what Paul is saying to us in Galatians. That's one quote-unquote solution. Another solution is to say, ah, you're talking about two different meetings. And the one that Paul is talking about happened uh, before the one that the book of Acts is talking about. Of course, you look in the book of Acts and you define that meeting. And you begin to wonder, well, uh, is it really reasonable that the two meetings so alike could have happened twice in just an, in a short period of time? Well, there are many scholars today, particularly conservative scholars, who think, yes, there were two different meetings. I'm not so sure about that. I have a feeling more than just a feeling that it was the same meeting. But that what some people think are uh, irreconcilable conflicts between Acts 15 on the one hand and Galatians 2 on the other are not really irreconcilable. They're rather the kinds of differences that uh, we are used to uh, in, in our lives day by day when uh, two people uh, give us a report of the same incident. And it isn't that there's a real contradiction, it's just that their perspectives are so different uh, that uh, at first it appears to be a contradiction. If you could get the two people together, uh, they would be able to solve it without any, any problem at all. Well, uh, our main interest, as I say, is in the book, uh, in, the, in the Gospels. Because 
Uh, here we have four documents, all of which treat the same historical subject, the life and teaching of Jesus. And therefore, you have four different perspectives, and many times you have the same uh, event, the same incident described by two or three or even all four of the Gospels. And differences uh, begin to uh, manifest themselves when we, when we read these passages. At the very beginning, for instance, uh, you start reading the, uh, the Gospel of Matthew and you have a genealogy of Jesus. And you look at it, oh yeah, it's very fine. Hmm? And then you go to the Gospel of Luke and uh, you get to chapter 3 and uh, here's another genealogy. And uh, uh, Luke, um, the way he does it, um, makes you wonder what's going on. He starts from the bottom instead of from the top, and uh, uh, some of the names uh, don't seem to coincide. And after a while, you're really wondering what's happening. Uh, well, is there an error between Matthew and Luke? Are they uh, uh, confused here, or is one of them confused? They can't both be right. Both of them can't be right, can they? Well. Uh, you keep reading in Matthew and uh, you have certain incidents regarding the uh, birth of Jesus and the events that followed. And then you look at uh, the first couple of chapters in Luke and uh, you have different kinds of incidents. And you wonder how in the world you can put these two uh, uh, narratives together. That's been one of the classic uh, problems in, in gospel harmonization. And uh, for your interest, if you're not aware of it, uh, J. Gresham Machen, one of the founders of the seminary, in his, uh, his greatest work, really, on the virgin birth of Christ, uh, spent a great deal of time as a historian trying to uh, come up with answers to what appeared to be conflicts between Matthew and Luke. And he proposed uh, many uh, reasonable uh, solutions to uh, these problems. He may have been right or he may have been wrong. In a sense, as a really secondary question about his own solution. But uh, if you show that there is at least a reasonable way of bringing the two passages together, in a sense, that's all you need to do uh, to show that there, there, there are no irreconcilable uh, conflicts here. Well, there are many other examples of, of this sort of problem in the Gospels. Um, a very interesting one it has to do with the story of the cleansing of the temple. Now, that story is found in all four Gospels. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the uh, so-called Synoptic Gospels, that incident is described at the very end of the life of Christ, in the last week of his ministry in Jerusalem. But, wh but when you go to the Gospel of John, uh, you read about that, uh, about a cleansing of the temple in chapter 2 of the Gospel, at the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Now, what do you do with that? Well, the usual solution has been simple. There were two of them. One at the beginning, one at the end. Now, that is perfectly possible. That is perfectly possible. And it may be the correct answer to that problem. But what I would like to do uh, this morning is to uh, get us to think along different lines for a change here. You see, it is very possible and even probable for our perspective to be distorted uh, when we are always thinking in terms of harmonization. Uh, when we're thinking about harmonization, uh, you're, you're really focusing exclusively on the historical events. And you're not paying any attention at all 
to another factor which is just as important, in some respects you might argue it's even more important, and that is not just the events which say Matthew describes for us, but what is Matthew himself trying to do when he gives us that historical event? You catch the difference. It's really very important, maybe subtle if you haven't thought about this for a while, uh, but it's really a very significant one. There are two levels here. One is the event itself. What happened when Jesus was in Palestine walking and talking? That's one level. But the other level is, okay, Matthew sits down to write about that event. What's he trying to do? Uh, is he simply interested in giving you a, uh, uh, a journalistic uh, type report? Is that all that's, that's involved here? Or is there more to it than that? Uh, you see, one way of, um, of uh, approaching this problem is to ask the question, why do we have four Gospels anyway? It's interesting uh, how seldom that question has been asked. Well, uh, I suppose maybe it has been asked frequently, but uh, I don't think uh, a lot of attention has been paid to a really uh, substantive and good answer to the question. Why did God see fit to have four different documents talk about the same thing? Particularly when, at least it appears, that uh, there's just a lot of repetition. You know, the parables in several uh, uh, Gospels and, and various events. What's the point, anyway? What's the point of that? Now, there was a, a professor of New Testament here at the seminary in the 40s and 50s by the name of Ned Stonehouse. And uh, Professor Stonehouse was very interested in that question. And in the early 40s, he published a book called The Witness of Matthew and Mark to Christ. And then a few years later, another book called The Witness of Luke to Christ. Now, that way of phrasing it, that the very title of, uh, of his books, uh, is very revealing. I say revealing of an individual who is now less interested in asking the question of, of how do we harmonize Matthew and Mark and Luke, and more interested in the question, what is the distinctive message? What is the point of having these various Gospels? How is Matthew's witness to Christ different from Mark's witness to Christ, from Luke's witness to Christ? What's the particular uh, uh, point? What, what motivates each of these Gospel writers? And uh, because that was his concern, his books uh, don't really have an awful lot to say about uh, harmonizing the material. Rather, and this is what's interesting and uh, very, very stimulating, he focuses specifically on the differences. And he asks the question, why is this different and what does it teach us? What does it teach us about Matthew's motive about his theology, if you will, about his message. What does it teach us about Mark and about Luke? And the result uh, is really a very, very interesting and uh, uh, more than just interesting, it throws so much light on the Gospels in a way that uh, perhaps we haven't uh, seen before. Maybe I should mention that uh, sometime later, uh, Professor Stonehouse uh, wrote another book 
called The Origins of the Synoptic Gospels, and in one of the uh, chapters he deals with the interesting story of the rich young ruler. And this is uh, a classic example of uh, what we're talking about. You know the story of the rich young ruler? This man comes to Jesus and says to him, at least if you're reading Mark and Luke, uh, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds, Why do you call me good? There's none good but God. And then the story continues, you remember. <coughs> uh, and uh, Jesus uh, tells him, if you want uh, eternal life, keep the commandments. And uh, he says, well, I've done all this uh, all my life. And Jesus says, well, then sell all you have and follow me. And at that point, the rich and ruler uh, is saddened and uh, um, walks away. But now, uh, that's what you find in Mark and in Luke. But when you go to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, the rich young ruler, when he comes to Jesus, doesn't say, good master, but simply says, master. And instead of saying, uh, what shall I do to inherit eternal life, he says, what good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? So the word good, instead of being found with master, is found with, uh, you know, what good thing shall I do? And then Jesus responds, instead of uh, being, uh, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. He responds, why do you ask me about the good? There's none good but God. Now, what do you do with that? Well, there are different things you could do. You could argue, for example, that they were two rich young ruler, rulers, yeah. right? <laughs> and uh, that Jesus met one in July and met another one in October. And uh, they had the same basic question. They phrased it a little bit differently, and uh, Jesus responded the same way, and they both walked away sad, and uh, so on and so forth. And, um, you know, it doesn't really grip us as uh, the, uh, the best way of handling that. Another possible way of, of handling it is to say, well, it is the same story. But then what we do is we try to uh, merge the two stories together. So what the rich young ruler really said was something like, good teacher, what good thing shall I do to inherit <laughs> eternal life? Then one gospel chose one way of doing it and another gospel the other. And uh, you know, even uh, the, the great uh, St. Augustine uh, used some approach like that, that Jesus uh, responded two ways. Uh, why do you call me good? And also, why do you ask me about the good? Uh, so Jesus said both things. Now, you see, uh, let me just say parenthetically, that any of these solutions, and maybe even others, are possible, because anything is possible. Uh, anyone who, uh, who spends some time on historical questions of this sort uh, finds all kinds of, of queer things happening that you wouldn't have expected. Uh, there are some very interesting examples that have been uh, uh, researched. Uh, uh, there was one that um, was related in the... Um, all this publication from the Council, International Council on Biblical Inerrancy, dealing with uh, an individual who had been uh, in an accident and uh, had been killed. And you had two uh, uh, witnesses with really what appeared to be contradictory uh, stories. And the one said, well, he was uh, walking, this man was walking uh, on, on the sidewalk and he was hit by a taxi. And uh, the other one said, uh, well, this, uh, man was in a car and the uh, truck uh, hit the, the, uh, the car and uh, he was killed instantly and uh, the, the stories just did not match at all. And as it turns out, believe it or not, this man was walking on the sidewalk, he was hit by a car, 
uh, somebody picked him up, put him in the car, take him to the hospital, and then a bus uh, hit the car. It, it really happened that way. Now, you just wouldn't expect it, you see. So, in a sense, you see, you can come up with, with these uh, uh, clever ways of solving problems, and they might be possible, but there comes a point where you begin to get a little bit suspicious, and uh, something just doesn't seem to ring true. Now, when you notice that the Gospel of Matthew in particular uh, often shows divergences, divergencies in the reporting of stories and in the reporting of, of a conversation, then you start asking the question, now wait a minute, maybe Matthew is deliberately changing things here, but changing things not because he is an error, you see, he doesn't really know what happened, no, he's done this deliberately, and uh, he's doing it not because he wants to uh, tell us a lie, but quite the opposite, because he wants to uh, explain to us something about the story which may not be uh, obvious to us on the first reading. Now, if you think about this for a while, you'll find that, that this is really a very common way of proceeding in our daily lives. Uh, when uh, I come home from work, my wife likes for me to tell what happened at work. and. Um, uh, particularly when I was teaching at Westmont College where all kinds of interesting hap things happen all the time. Here I spend most of my time in my study and it gets uh, boring. At least it would get boring for her if I told her oh, what I'm doing in my study. But uh, I often found, you know, that uh, when my wife wanted me to tell her what I did at work, uh, she didn't really want to know everything, you know. I mean, she didn't want me really to say, well, I got there about uh, 8.10 and uh, uh, I pulled my, the key out of my pocket and I inserted it in the lock and I uh, moved the uh, key and I sat in my chair and I uh, moved a few pieces of paper around and um, I wonder why, you know, it gets a little bit uh, boring after a while. She's not interested in that. And so what I do, I'm trying to compress, uh, you know, seven or eight hours of, of uh, my life into about ten minutes in the midst of four children trying to get in there, uh, uh, two cents worth. And I have to do a lot of artistic, uh, uh, you know, editing of the material. I have to omit lots of things. Not only do I have to omit lots of things, but uh, to get my point across as quickly as possible and this is very important, as accurately as possible. Sometimes I have to change the order of things, all right? Because if I start with something uh, the way it actually happened, it can be very confusing and even misleading uh, because I just cannot get every detail of what happened, you see, during the day. Now, all of us understand that sort of thing. All of us understand the way that language works. We, maybe we don't think about this so much, but um, for example, uh, suppose I, uh, I'm hungry at night and uh, I go to the kitchen, open the refrigerator and slam the door of the refrigerator and say, there isn't a bit of food there. But somebody could say, oh now, come on, uh, don't lie or you are in error. There is a whole head of lettuce in the refrigerator and a whole jar of mayonnaise and uh, you know ice cubes and what have you. Well, nobody says that. You see, that's not just pedantic, it, it's just, uh, uh, I mean, we, we know that we use certain conventions of speech to get certain things across. And what really matters is what, what did you intend to say by that? See, what was your intention? What, what were you after? Not the, not the absolutely 
precise meaning of each individual word. In the morning, uh, uh, say over the radio, you may hear the weather, uh, the weather reporters saying, well, the sun rose this morning at 6 o'clock. Well, what do you do? Do you write a letter to the station and, and protest this unscientific treatment, uh, how terrible it is? Don't they know that uh, the sun doesn't really rise? It's the earth that moves? No. Why? Well, because you understand that we use certain kinds of, again, conventions of speech. And uh, we accept that. We don't say the man is an error. Uh, we don't accuse him of falsehood. No, we, we take him uh, according to the most natural meaning, the intention of what he's trying to say. Now, what troubles us, you see, and what creates a problem for us, is that in the modern world, whenever we read a historical book, our minds are uh, set in a certain direction, particularly if, if, you, if you've gone through college, you see, you know something about the historical responsibility, you know that you're not supposed to quote without quotation marks, and uh, you're supposed to give the exact the bibliographic reference and uh, uh, try to be chronologically exact. That, that's sort of what is expected of a historical book. And we tend to forget that that's really a very recent conception, very, very recent. Uh, the great, you think of the great the historian of ancient uh, Greece, Thucydides. Thucydides tells you, now sometimes uh, I give you certain speeches in this book and I think I should warn you that I wasn't there. And um, uh, I just kind of put together the speech from what a few people reported and I just constructed this speech myself. She constructs it. You know, he didn't hear it, he just you know, I got snippets here and there and, and put it together. Now Thucydides isn't bothered by that at all, and people who read his books weren't bothered by that at all. That was common. It doesn't mean that he was inaccurate necessarily. It was just part of, of the artistry of writing a historical book to do that sort of thing. Now, you have to keep that in mind. And when you keep that in mind, you go back to the rich young ruler, for example, and uh, you can really uh, get a, a f the flavor of what's happening in a much better way than you might have otherwise. Because you see, when you read the story in Mark or in Luke, it really does create a problem, doesn't it? At least at first sight. Because it appears as though Jesus is uh, disclaiming his own goodness. Why do you call me good? There's none good but God. And I suspect that in the early church, uh, probably many of the Christians at that time might have thought the same thing. You know, what? this is very awfully strange. You know, why does Jesus say this? and they might have been troubled about the, the uh, most reasonable way of explaining uh, that, uh, that incident. Well, you see, what you have to keep in mind is that almost surely, when Matthew writes his gospel, he is writing not to people who have never heard about Jesus before, but about people who already knew the gospel story. Maybe, very possibly, to people who already had the gospel of Mark. We could argue that way if you like, and therefore, what Matthew is trying to do is not just write a history book in our modern sense of the word, but to write, well, this is putting it perhaps a little bit too strongly, but to write a sermon, if you will. To write a, um, an explanation of the events, but to do it in historical form. Now, all of us hear that sort of thing every Sunday in church, and it never bothers us. I remember once uh, uh, listening to someone in the Youth for Christ meeting and he was speaking about uh, 
Paul writing a letter to the Corinthians, and when he said that Paul had to write a letter, he went like this uh, with his fingers as though uh, Paul were typing a letter, you see. And that uh, we can't chuckle and so on, and we all knew that there were no typewriters in those days. Uh, that didn't bother us. He's just trying to spice up, uh, you know, the, uh, his little talk. A uh, year or two ago in chapel there at Westmont College, um, a fellow was talking about Paul and Silas being in prison. Uh, you remember how <clears throat> uh, they begin to sing. So he tried to reconstruct what's happening, you see. And uh, so uh, Paul says to Silas, well, Silas, what shall we do? Silas says, I don't know. What do you want to do? And Paul says, well, uh, why don't we sing? All right, let's sing. Okay, what shall we sing? How about Joshua for the Battle of Jericho? <laughs> and uh, he starts singing the song, you see. Now, uh, that's what you call a little bit of artistic reconstruction of the incident. It's not in the book of Acts. We hear this sort of thing, sometimes more extreme than others in church, and, uh, and we don't, uh, you know, file uh, disciplinary charges against the preacher for being a, a, a liberal or whatever. It's part of a way of communicating and explaining and clarifying and getting certain points across. Now, Matthew does that sort of thing in a way. And therefore, with the rich young ruler, what's he trying to get at? Well, he's trying to tell us, look, when that rich young ruler said to Jesus, good master or good teacher, what do you think he said there? Was it because he recognized the unique sense in which Jesus was God? Was good, rather? Not at all. Not at all. What the man was saying was something like this. Jesus, we understand each other. You know, we're both of the same type. You know, you're good and I'm good, and uh, we're in business uh, here. Uh, so, uh, what's the way to go to heaven? Now, by changing the wording a little bit, Matthew is trying to help us to understand that aspect. That uh, the man's uh, statement, "Good teacher," uh, didn't really. Uh, tell us about what that man thought about Jesus, but what he thought about himself. And therefore, Jesus has to uh, refresh uh, or, or revise his conception of goodness. First of all, he says, well, keep the commandments. And then it really comes out, well, I've kept everything. You know, I have kept everything. And Jesus then really uh, comes at the very heart of it and shows him how, at, at the most profound level, uh, he did not have that kind of love for God, which uh, ought to overrule everything else. Now, that's part of uh, Matthew's technique. And uh, there's another incident which is particularly interesting and that I want to uh, spend a little bit of time with uh, because, again, I think it really can help us understand a little bit better what, uh, how the Gospels are, are made and, and uh, how we ought to respond when we see what appears to be a contradiction. Uh, should we harmonize them? Well, that's fine. You know, that's, that's always a valid approach. But what I'm saying is that although we want to affirm the inerrancy of Scripture, and although we want to affirm that there are no real uh, substantive contradictions, that nevertheless, if we're always thinking about how do we solve the problem, instead of why is there a difference? What does it tell us about this particular gospel? 
that if we, if we don't, uh, if we have that sort of perspective, you see, it may mislead us a little bit. And uh, I, we have an example here that I think is particularly helpful to get us to think perhaps in, in ways in which we haven't thought before. And I'm talking about the uh, incident of the stilling of the storm. Remember when, um, well, if we go to the Gospel of Mark in particular, we have that story uh, rather uh, neatly uh, laid out for us. It's, uh, it's in chapter 4, and the setting is uh, something like this. Jesus is in Galilee, no doubt in Capernaum, which was in the northwest uh, shore of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, he has been teaching all day. Uh, the, uh, this is a chapter where Jesus speaks about the, uh, the kingdom, and, and he gives the parables of the kingdom, uh, sower, and, and so on. And when you come to uh, near the end of the chapter, uh, let's see, uh, verse 35 of Mark 4, uh, this is what we read. That day, in other words, the same day when he had been giving all these parables, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. Now, the thing to keep in mind is that, the, uh, again, the setting seems to be that Jesus has been uh, working all day. He's been teaching. He's probably tired. He wants to leave the crowds. And so they take the boat and uh, go to the other side, which probably means to uh, the southeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. They were crossing the, 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 the lake uh, uh, diagonally, probably. Then we're told in verse 37, a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Now in just one verse here, Mark uh, describes what must have been really a very terrifying uh, situation. Whenever we see pictures of the Sea of Galilee, they're usually in these postcards, the, the uh, lake looks incredibly beautiful and still, and I suppose it's that way most of the time. But occasionally you do get some rather uh, severe storms uh, from the, uh, the winds that come from the northeast. Uh, uh, there are the ravines and gorges, and it, it can be really quite a, a problem. Now here you have these uh, fishermen, they were experienced, and uh, they begin to get very, very concerned. Uh, verse 38, Jesus was in the stern, however, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, that's a familiar story. But I want you to be very clear on the setting, the historical setting, as Mark gives it to us. Now, let's suppose that you want to find out how this story is related for us in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. If you're going to find it, you might look for the Gospels, to, for the, rather for the parables of the kingdom, because it should be in the same place, shouldn't it? Well, the parables of the kingdom, you may recall, are in chapter 13 of Matthew chapter 13. But if you go there, you look for the story of the stilling of the storm and you're not going to find it. As a matter of fact, uh, the story of the stilling of the storm in Matthew is quite a bit 
before in chapter 8, not chapter 13. And immediately we have a little problem. And you might think it's more than just a little problem. Doesn't Matthew know his history? Is he all confused about the, when these things took place? That might occur to you. But that's not all. In Matthew chapter 8, the setting is uh, completely different and it creates another problem. In, um, say, beginning with verse 18 of Matthew chapter 8, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, that uh, incident, uh, you know, Jesus' uh, reply, you remember that, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That incident is also found in the Gospel of Luke. But in the Gospel of Luke, uh, it is related to us towards the end of Jesus' ministry. So here you have another problem. Uh, according to, um, uh, to the Gospel of Mark, you have the stilling of the storm here in chapter 4, uh, say about the middle of Jesus' Galilean ministry, approximately. Then, according to Luke, uh, you have the incident of the scribe who says, I want to follow you, and Jesus says, you know, foxes have holes, and so on. And that's, I forget the chapter, but it's, uh, you know, way back, way down uh, in the later Judean ministry uh, of Jesus' uh, life. But in Matthew, what does he do? Well, he takes a stilling of the storm, brings it back. See, chapter 13 would correspond here. But he has it back in chapter 8. And he combines the stilling of the storm uh, uh, with this incident, uh, which, uh, according to Luke, took place much later, and brings it all together there. Then he goes on uh, to say, verse 21, Another man, one of his disciples, said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their own dead. Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, Lord? Hmm. In Mark, it was teacher. Now it's Lord. Lord, save us. We're going to drown. Now in Mark, it wasn't quite that respectful. He was more like, don't we care that we drown? <laughs> and this is changed to a request. Save us. We're going to drown. And then the rest of the story is pretty much the same. <coughs> now, what are we going to do with this? See, if you're only thinking about the historical uh, connection, the chronological date, and so on, it can be a troubling experience. And you begin to wonder, well, you know, how can we uh, talk about inerrancy? But then when you start remembering that that's not really what Matthew's interested in, giving precise chronological information, it's very seldom that any of the Gospels do that sort of thing, by the way. It's very seldom that they give you, they tell you, you know, three months later or two months, and sometimes they don't even give you where things happen. When you remember that, and you try to ask the question, well, what is Matthew really up to here? What's he trying to do? If he is not trying to write a historical document in the same sense in which a 20th century historian might, what is he doing? Well, then you remember, ah, is he preaching a sermon? Is he giving us a theological uh, explanation of Jesus' life? 
And that begins to make uh, a lot of sense. Why? Well, <coughs> in chapters 5 to 7 of Matthew, which immediately precede uh, chapter 8, of course, you have the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount has a very clear, forceful message. And it is this. If you're going to be my disciple, you'd better understand what it really means. Your righteousness, he says, has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. In fact, you have to be perfect, as my Father in heaven is perfect. And as you read uh, some of these statements, you begin to wonder, you know, is, is Jesus being reasonable about this sort of thing? Then you get to this uh, chapter 8 of, of Matthew, verse 18, and uh, I don't know whether you notice, but in, chapter, in, in verse 19, uh, the scribe or the teacher of the law who comes says to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Follow. Discipleship is in view here. And that Jesus' response appears to be a discouraging kind of response. Uh, something like, do you really know what you're getting into? Uh, you know, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man, you know, he doesn't even have a place to lay his head. Uh, it's going to be tough. It's going to be trouble, if you follow me. Then, again, another man, one of his disciples, said to him, Lord, uh, first we let go and bury my father. And Jesus says, uh, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, you know, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about that incident. And the usual approach is to try to play it down as much as possible. In other words, try to play down Jesus' severity. And uh, to try to make uh, this fellow look as bad as possible. You know, his father wasn't really, hadn't died yet. He wasn't even about to die. What he really meant was, let me go and wait until he dies. Uh, you know, he's uh, 43 in great health, but nevertheless. <laughs> um, and uh, now there may be something to that. I'm not sure. But uh, if, if, if that's our emphasis, we miss that uh, this is deliberately intended to sound unreasonable. And as a matter of fact, uh, there is a, uh, probably a contrast between this and uh, what's the story of when Elisha, Elijah, asked Elisha to come and uh, Elisha asked to be able to go back to his home for a minute and Elijah says, sure. But you see, if you're going to follow Jesus, it's more severe than if you follow Elijah. You don't have that sort of option. And then, this is very, very significant, although it may really escape you if you're not looking for this sort of thing. Verse 23 then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. You see what's happening? Jesus, uh, Matthew has taken this incident of the stilling of the storm, and he has transformed it into a sermon on discipleship. And the sermon is trying to say to us, look, following Jesus is not just uh, a bed of roses. Uh, it can mean trouble. And then, when you read this, this story of, of the storm in the uh, Lake of Galilee, uh, you, you have to be careful because, uh, you see, it's, the story is so compressed that perhaps you don't have time to let it sink in. What a, what a terrible, frightening thing this must have been. And you have to keep in mind all of the uh, uh, emphases that you have in the, in the Old Testament. 
uh, on the waters as a symbol of judgment and terror. You know, that, that's so common in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms, probably because of the, of the background of the flood. And uh, one of the standard ways in which uh, uh, an Old Testament uh, uh, individual would have expressed great agony was to say something like, the waters are coming up, you see, uh, to me. This whole notion of, of, of the waters and the floods and the waves uh, is a great symbol of, of terror and judgment. And that's what you have here. Uh, that's what is going to face the disciple of Jesus sooner or later. But when the disciple of Jesus faces that kind of terror, uh, he has to remember that uh, even though it may appear that Jesus is sleeping, and not listening. He is indeed the one who has the power over the waves. And then you also have to remember not only uh, that uh, that water uh, is a symbol of judgment and, and terror and whatever in the Old Testament, but that one of the great themes of the Old Testament is also God's power over the waters. In the Exodus, uh, where he parts the waters and then he uses the water to destroy the, the Israelites, and in many other uh, settings, you have that, that great emphasis on, on the God who is powerful over the waters. In fact, uh, just in case you haven't been reading this sort of thing uh, uh, recently, there are a couple of passages that are very, very um, interesting. For example, in Psalm 106, Psalm 106, uh, verse 9, uh, where there's this recollection of the Exodus, and uh, this is the way it's stated, uh, Psalm 106, verse 9, He rebuked the Red Sea, and it dried up. He led them through the depths as through a desert. So the notion of God rebuking the seas, which is what Jesus now does here at the time of the storm, and, and the fact that that makes it possible for God to lead His people uh, is, is a very important concept behind it. Or again, uh, in, Ch in Psalm 65, verse 7, Psalm 65, verse 7, we read, uh, well, let's see, beginning with verse 5, so you get the, the whole flavor of this passage. You answer us with awesome deeds of righteousness, O God our Savior, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, who formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, and the turmoil of the nations. Um, there are many others. Uh, for example, Psalm 89, verse 9. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. And uh, particularly uh, beautiful is uh, Psalm 107 that I, I won't take the time to read. But again, God's concern over his people in the midst of, of the troubles that they find in the seas. And that is surely uh, the background of, uh, of uh, Matthew chapter 8. The point, you see, is that there was no need for the disciples to lose their composure. To the, to the extent that we lose our serenity, then we do fall short. And therefore, what you find is, is a tension uh, in, in the scriptures, and particularly in this passage, that to follow Jesus uh, involves risk. I remember I spent some time in England, and uh, uh, I remember meeting a, a gal who had become a Christian, 
and uh, she had been a Christian for a while, and she began to ask the question, you know, why didn't people tell me <laughs> what it was going to be like? Uh, why didn't people warn me that there would be some very, very serious difficulties uh, as a Christian? And she was a little bit peeved, you see, that uh, a, a rosy picture had been uh, painted of uh, you know, joy and peace, which is certainly true, but it's a joy and peace that manifests itself uh, not uh, without the conflict that, uh, that, that makes God's grace to really stand out. It is a risk to follow Jesus. That's what Matthew's trying to say to us. But on the other hand, it is not an ultimate kind of risk. Uh, it is not a, the sort of thing where we need to lose uh, our composure, where we need to despair. Our times of trial, when we look back on them, seem rather short-lived. Short God raised us up again, and God used even uh, these uh, troubles to bring us closer to him. Now, you know, maybe I'm, I'm doing more with this passage than, than Matthew originally intended, but I think, in essence, uh, that's, that's what we're dealing with here. And uh, therefore, what I'm trying to say to you is that as we think of the authority of Scripture, as we think of the matter of, of its authority, uh, its historical reliability, when we think of the problem of, of uh, conflicts and harmonization, let's not lose perspective. Let's not get so involved in the controversies that, that face us today that uh, we miss the main thing that we're here for, to understand what the Bible is all about. What is it really trying to say to us? And uh, keep in mind, therefore, particularly with the Gospels, that our faith, our faith in Scripture, ought to uh, color our basic approach to uh, this whole matter of, uh, of, of the historicity and of, uh, of Jesus' life. You see, one often gets the impression from listening to, uh, to many Christians, to scholars, even evangelical scholars, <clears throat> that just as long as you can uh, preserve the, um, the validity of Jesus' historical teaching. That's all that matters. It matters less if the Gospels contradict each other, you see. And uh, what really matters is what re Jesus really said, whatever that was. Now, I don't know whether this is maybe a, a problem that we tend to romanticize things. You know, we, we feel that we are so disadvantaged because we are unable to sit on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and hear the wind uh, rustling the, uh, uh, the flowers as we listen to Jesus, you see. And we tend to think that maybe we're missing something. And we forget that uh, in the scriptures we have all that we really need. And that Jesus, the Jesus who speaks to us in the Gospel of Matthew, is no less Jesus than the Jesus who walked in Palestine. In other words, uh, try to resist this tendency to draw a wedge uh, between what Jesus really said and did in Palestine on the one hand and what the Gospels are telling us. The source of our authority is not a historical Jesus reconstructed by modern historians. The source of our authority is the scriptures, you see. Now, the scriptures, insofar they talk about Jesus' history, uh, well, they are reliable. They are to be trusted. But that's, that's where our focus ought to lie, uh, because that's the only place where we find Jesus. We don't find Jesus in the historian's uh, tools, you see. We find Jesus in scripture. 
And uh, I think this kind of perspective and this, this approach to the gospel material can really be helpful in, um, for one thing, in, in keeping us from um, uh, overemphasizing things that uh, perhaps we have tended to overemphasize. And it can also help us to, uh, to see uh, what is uh, really significant ab about many of these passages in the gospels. Well, that's uh, all that I, I have to say. We have uh, 10 or 15 minutes for your questions and uh, your comments. Uh, and I'd be happy to entertain any questions you may have, not, not only about this topic, but uh, other related issues as well as you'd like. Yes. Good. Uh, you have a, a story in the Gospels, and Matthew, because of the way in which he relates it, uh, is trying to teach us a lesson through it. So the question is, Maybe this is what you're trying to get at. Is the, is the question then that this is the only lesson that we ought to draw from it because it is the one that Matthew seems to be emphasizing? Or is there multiplicity of meaning? That is, are there various kinds of things that we uh, might be able to, to gather from that same incident? It's not uh, an easy question to answer simply, as uh, I'm sure you can uh, understand, because uh, in a way, uh, you have to answer that question for each specific passage uh, in its own terms. Uh, in some ways it may appear easy to make some kind of general statement and answer just yes or no. I prefer to say, well, now you look at a passage and, and uh, you, you deal with it and you try to understand what, uh, what its significance is and you try to show uh, that there may be more than one important uh, point that is being uh, uh, brought out there. And uh, I'm much more comfortable with doing that you know, passage for passage rather than to make some general statement. But I would have to say that in principle, yes. Uh, in principle, it is possible for an event uh, to, uh, to bear more than, to have significance in more than one way. Uh, but be careful, because that can mean different things to different people, you know. Uh, I think particularly as you're dealing, uh, say, with uh, the letters of Paul, or what we might call a didactic passage in Scripture, one that is uh, directly teaching rather than just telling a story, that we have to be very careful not to, uh, not to fall into the temptation of finding, you know, 15 different ideas. Uh, that, that our focus ought to be on, you know, what is Paul really trying to say here? What is his concern? And, and just focus on that. When you're dealing with a story, uh, a, a historical narrative, uh, you have a little bit more flexibility. Because, for example, you know, you could talk about Matthew 8, and you could argue uh, that uh, that story uh, talks not just about discipleship, but it talks about the power of God. And I would want to say, I think, that here's a story that does have multiplicity of meaning. Uh, what in, in, if you look at, the cha at uh, chapter 4 of Mark, that may be what comes to mind primarily, Christ's power, you see. When you read Matthew 8, uh, Jesus, uh, Matthew is interested not merely in talking about Jesus' power, but Jesus' power in a particular setting, namely in, in connection with those who have decided to take the risk of following him. So um, I would, I guess, my answer would run along, you know, those lines. Uh, you try first of all to identify what the writer of scripture really has in mind, and uh, you may find that if two different writers are dealing with the same incident or the same topic, they may, as a matter of fact, draw different kinds of 
of uh, ideas or concerns, and that's that's legitimate and possible. But uh, one one always wants to be cautious, I think, about uh, not not pressing it too much.